Come, Holy Spirit, touch our minds and think with them, touch our lips and speak with them, and touch our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. So on Saturday, I had the privilege to, to preach at the ordinations and to the priesthood in Baltimore, the Diocese of Maryland, and, and three of our nine, uh, 2017 graduates were, were being ordained, uh, Lisa Board, Robert Bunker, and Patty Sachs. It's sort of interesting today, I find myself in a different pulpit on this first ember day of this new academic year, where I'm again compelled by circumstance and scripture to reflect on God's call to ministry. I'm going to have to get a different dance ticket next time to diversify my sermons. Perhaps I was unique when I came here 36 years ago, but no one told me that I was supposed to write Ember Day letters to my bishop. (laughs) And I don't think anybody actually told me what an Ember Day was. I kind of got the message in full flight that first few weeks, and I dashed something off. I, I, I guess I, I sort of faked it, and I didn't want to ask anybody questions, but I didn't want to look like I was not quite Episcopalian enough to be here. <laughs> and so in case any of you all are in that particular place I was, particularly our first-year students who were in the ordination process, here's just a little primer. Ember Day's are sets of three days, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, that fall almost in equal quarters through the year, September before Michael Mass, early Advent, early Lent, and after Pentecost. You can get them on the liturgical calendar online. We didn't have this thing called the internet back in those days. (laughs) At times that were historically times of feasting, rather fasting and prayer, that came to be occasions for ordinations. So with that little historical hat tip, uh, the tradition came that you would communicate with your bishop in the ordination process over these four times a year. So there'd be good communication about your academic, spiritual, and personal lives. And now I'll give you just a little counsel. It's always okay to write relatively brief one-page Ember Day letters. I once got, and I'm, you know, as Dave Barry would say, I'm not making this up. I once got a six-page single-space Ember Day letter. It was not from a student from Virginia Theological Seminary. I'm aware, as I say all this, that many of you are not in the ordination process, but all of us, every single person in this chapel, I would assert, is here because we're seeking to answer God's call. For some of us, we've tried like Jonah to outrun God. Some are like David, young. Others seasoned and weathered like Andrew and Simon from years of fishing. We're male, female, straight, gay. As Paul noted earlier in this epistle that we heard from today, we all have a variety of gifts. We are here because God is calling us, and we have said yes. Indeed, I would suggest that we are those who strive for the greater gifts. We yearn deeply to know God 
and have a passion for that still more excellent way. And we find ourselves engaged in formation in a time when there are great questions about church, about ministry. Increasingly, the church is seen as peripheral to society, as sort of a sideshow, maybe even a quirk to some. And on the inside, we can be so over-focused on ourselves and become divided and bickering. But you know, this epistle reminds us that it was like that from the very beginning. The same things were true once upon a time in Corinth. That group was small and insignificant from those who might have seen them. At best, they were almost invisible in Roman society, those Christians, and and would be considered peculiar. And in Paul's first letter, we have actually the first documentation of a church fight and accompanying gossip. And in the 11th verse, right at the very beginning, Paul tips his hand why he's writing the letter. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Chloe's people still exist in every Episcopal church. (laughs) And yet, from a community in conflict, hardly noted in world's history, except because of Paul's letters, we have received the faith once delivered. The common denominator of church in every age is imperfection. The common feature of everyone called is our humanity, our brokenness. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that really good news. We will not measure up to each other. God will love us anyway. We will show, sometimes in technicolor, our worst sides. Theologian Karl Barth got it right when he once wrote that the church may become beggar, it may act like a shopkeeper, it may make itself a harlot as as has happened and still does happen, yet it is always the bride of Christ. Warts and all, we are the body of Christ assembled for mission and ministry. This is the Pauline theme and message to those divided and cantankerous Corinthians. It is the message to us. We belong together. We're called to be one in Christ. However, unity is not the message of our culture, not in this age. We live in a time where in so many ways, division is seen as a path to ascendancy and power. Want to get wealthy? Others must have less. Flip that around. Someone's getting more, I must be getting the shaft. Want political power? vilify your opponents. And rest assured, 
Just think back on Chloe's people. These maladies infect the church as well. We are sore oppressed by our relentless and unhappy divisions. And because we are hindered and divided by sin, this very unity does not come easily. So how do we get there? How do we find that one in Christ and join in God's mission of healing a broken world? Well, it turns out the Beatles were right after all. All we need is love. Paul's summative treatise on love is that it is the only ultimate thing, love. God is love that will bring us together and hold us together. As many of you know from your studies in Greek, there are four words that are translated in the Greek language to our one word, love. Eros, physical love. Philia, sisterly, brotherly love. Storge, family love. And agape. And it's agape that is the word used by Paul in his reflection on love. It is not sippy or sentimental love. It doesn't require agreement or even affection. It is the love of God for us and our human efforts to love God in return. It is the love of Jesus, self-giving, sacrificial. That love is patient, kind, not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It rejoices in truth. It endures all things. And this love is eternal. Grasping this way of love is incredibly hard, and it is countercultural. It is a matter of maturing, giving up childish ways. We do glimpse it in a mirror dimly with a promise of full understanding. We make our way towards maturity with practicing. It is the kind of love that is a bit like the grace of all things fly fishing as described by Norman MacLean in his book, A River Runs Through It. When he writes that all good things come by grace and grace comes by art and art does not come easily. In the ministry of Jesus, we're all practitioners of grace and love. We're practitioners of the art of agape. There's a Talmudic legend of two brothers, maybe you've heard it, who farmed together on opposite sides of a mount. As the years go by, the elder brother marries and the younger brother remains single. Still more years pass and the elder brother's family grows as children bless the household. At harvest time, the brothers would equally divide up the wheat, placing the fruits of their labor in two different 
equal piles. Over time, though, the younger brother would look at the growing family of his older brother, so many mouths to feed. And so he would rise in the middle of the night and move a substantial portion of his grain to his brother's pile. The older brother, too, worried. He worried, though, about his younger brother and feared that he would have no one to care for him in his old age. And so each night he would rise and in the darkness shift a substantial portion of his grain to his brother's pile. Dark in the night, the inevitable happened and both brothers bumped into each other as they were doing their ministrations for each other. Realized what was happening and why the piles were mysteriously equal each morning and they embraced an agape love. It is said that God looked down upon that agape and said this on this threshing floor is where I will build my temple. God dwells where agape is found. Beloved, and I do not use that word carelessly. Beloved, this is what agape love looks like. It's about giving for the other, sometimes carelessly, recklessly. It's about willing to surrender our own security for our sister, our brother. As we continue to live into the full measure of the body of Christ, we're called to live in this way of love. It is the pathway to the kingdom of the beloved. The love of Jesus is costly and it is complete. And in the end, it is this love of Jesus that takes us to that center, that holiness of life that we crave. And in the end, agape, love, is all that really matters. We practice this love in the little things of life, not the big gestures. We fill the bucket of agape and kindness one drop at a time, the bucket overflows, making a stream which creates a river, which creates an ocean that changes the world. And now, faith, hope, love, abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Let us so love.